0: This is not the sound of a stream running through the mountains. It's water from a leaking pipe trickling down a stairway. That's not a frog splashing into a lake. It's a piece of sheetrock falling into a puddle on a kitchen floor. And that's not a hiker taking a deep breath of mountain air. It's a homeowner gasping at the sight of a $12,000 water damage repair bill. 40% of homeowners have experienced water damage. Protect your home with the Moen Smart Water Monitor and Shutoff. Moen.
3: So when the head of the CIA was asked at the beginning of the 21st century to summarise what they did, he only required three words, and the three words were, we steal secrets.
4: That was Christopher Andrew discussing the history of intelligence. Today's podcast guest is a world-renowned historian of intelligence and espionage, Professor Christopher Andrew, whose previous books include the authorised history of MI5 and a history of KGB activities in the West. His latest book, The Secret World, A History of Intelligence, has just been released and our staff writer, Ellie Cawthorne met up with him recently to find out more.
0: So, today on the podcast, I'm joined by Professor Christopher Andrew, who's spent the last 50 years working on the history of intelligence and espionage. During which time, you've been um, the official historian of MI5 and you've also worked in secret with KGB agents. Um, this summer, of course, you've got a new book out. Um, I wonder whether you could maybe just give us a little introduction, a taster to what's in store.
3: Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> the reason that I began in the first place was uh, not because I was exceptionally interested in spies and code-breaking and so on, but because it just got left out of other histories. So, you know, most, uh, for example, students at university are now in the extraordinary position. On the front pages of their newspapers, they're going to read spy stories. And then when they get set essays in IR or history or whatever, there's not going to be any. Uh, So anyway, what this book is is intended to do is um, plug that that sort of, uh, of gap. And uh, what it's forced me to do for the first time is go right back to the beginning. So the first person of any significance in world literature who insisted on the importance of accurate intelligence was God, who, when he decided to hand over to the children of Israel the Promised Land, told Moses to send out spies to spy up the Promised Land, the land of Canaan. Moses messed it up, and that was the first real intelligence failure, and there have been quite a few since.
0: I think actually I should mention that the name of your book is The Secret World, A History of Intelligence. And as you mentioned, you start with the Bible and you take things right up to the 21st century. What do we gain from such a broad spectrum of intelligence history, rather than just focusing on the 20th century as is often done?
3: Well, two things. One is the missing bit. Uh, because you can look up most histories of most parts of the world at most periods, at any rate, up to the 21st century, uh, and it's missing. Secondly, we get a better insight, I think, into what's gone wrong in the 21st century, because this is an area in which uh, the intelligence profession, not its own fault, has been more ignorant of past experience than any other. I mean, even Bletchley Park... You know, the, the one British intelligence agency, which is a world famous and notorious, site where we broke Hitler's ciphers and, and so on, the people there had the slightest idea that they weren't the first to do this. You know, the previous time where we were facing a likely invasion from Napoleon, we broke his codes. Bletchley didn't know that, and the people who broke Napoleon's codes at the beginning of the nineteenth century, they had no idea. Uh, that the last time we were threatened with a really nasty invasion, which was called the Spanish Armada, uh, his uh, Philip II's um, codes were broken as, uh, as, as well. So the missing bit is put back a hope uh, into a significant amount of British and world history.
0: Intelligence over this time has taken so many different forms. Um, I wonder whether you could tell us what exactly we are talking about when we're talking about intelligence.
3: On the basis of uh, intelligence, which has got lots of complicated uh, definitions, most of the complicated definitions seem to me to be pointless, it's just secrets, what you can't get from open sources. So when the head of the CIA was asked at the beginning of the 21st century to summarize what they did, he only required three words, and the three words were, we steal secrets. Now, that sounds pretty obvious, but understanding secrets is not very straightforward. And the reason is that most people get their idea of intelligence not from books, which until recently were not written anyway, but from spy fiction. Intelligence is far better known at a fictional level than a factual level. And you know, one of the main distortions is simply this. Anyone who works with information, which is everybody, knows that it really comes in one sensational piece of information. You just pick it up all the time and gradually make your mind up. But in spy stories, it's the other way around. You don't bother about um, everyday stuff. You suddenly get a shattering piece of information. And it's not like that at all.
0: Something that you discuss throughout the book is seeking Um, which for us civilians, uh, could you explain what exactly that is and why it has been so important in the history of intelligence?
3: Well, I'm glad to be able to do so because even the word was classified (laughs) (laughs) until 50 50 years ago. SIGINT stands for Signals uh, Intelligence, Um, but what it actually means is the information you pick up from intercepting communications, which has been going on for as long as there were um, communications. And that is, of course, what Bletchley Park did so brilliantly during the uh, the Second World War. But the the point the book makes is that it's um, been going on for ages and ages. Now, the Europeans, the West, weren't the best at it until the 16th century. The first people to be really good at it was the House of Wisdom, the Muslim House of Wisdom in 9th century Baghdad. And the man who made the biggest breakthrough in the history of code-breaking was uh, a man called Al-Kindi. Now, when Renaissance Venice made exactly the same breakthrough in the early 16th century, it had the slightest idea that the same breakthrough had been made 600 years uh, earlier by uh, Muslim uh, cryptanalysts. Um, So that's a continuous part of the history of international relations, forgotten by most uh, historians of international relations. And even as recently as the Cold War, for example, most people would probably say that the best single volume history of the, the Cold War, not quite most up to date any longer, is by John Gaddis and it's called The Cold War. There is not one word about Cold in that. So nobody, um, not um, even a student, would write about the Second World War without mentioning intelligence. People carry on writing about the Cold War as if SIGINT didn't exist.
0: So, of course, we've mentioned that you think uh, intelligence is often missing from the picture of history. But as a historian, how do you go about finding and uncovering something that is inherently covert and inherently hidden
3: Well, like a lot of historical research, it's really, really difficult and therefore more enjoyable. But some of it is utterly straightforward. It's simply that people haven't paid um, attention to it. So that under Queen Elizabeth I, intelligence was just as important as it has been under Queen Elizabeth II. Indeed, Queen Elizabeth was in serious danger of assassination, and the only way these assassination plots could be discovered... Um, was uh, actually by intelligence of various kinds. Now, all that material uh, is is there. What has not been noticed is how grateful Qu- uh, Queen Elizabeth was. Uh, Queen Elizabeth uh, not merely sent her personal congratulations to the codebreaker who discovered one of the major plots, uh, she uh, also gave him a pension. And she saw her intelligence chief every day. There's no other monarch who has seen... Uh, in or his intelligence chief, every day since then. Uh, this was uh, Francis Walsingham, and she gave him a picture as a sign of gratitude, uh, which has got uh, all the Tudors uh, on it. But what I think is most extraordinary and a clue that's been missed until very recently is her royal frock against strong competition. The most extraordinary royal frock in the entire history of British royal frocks is Queen Elizabeth I's last frock. Now, uh, it's in a painting, uh, but she had to give her personal approval, so we know that she personally approved it, a year or so before her death in 1603. And what does it show? Uh, it's The dress is covered by a cloak, which has two motifs on it, which cover the whole cloak. Eyes and ears, what do they mean? Don't even think about it, traitors. My boys, and this was not an equal opportunity profession, can hear everything you say and see everything you do. So that frock has been there um, (laughs) for about 500 years. But what has happened is that they're historians of frocks and they're historians of secret intelligence. And until I and one or two others came along, uh, they'd not got together.
0: Um, I think that raises an interesting point about um, the way that intelligence has been used. And in another part of the book, you speak about Ivan the Terrible and Stalin uh, kind of drawing parallels between the two and the very intense security services that they employed. Do you think that um, intelligence is a sign of strength in a state or a sign of weakness because you feel um, the paranoia and the need to um, spy on everyone? Well,
3: first of all, it's essential. Uh, but uh, how uh, authoritarian states and relatively democratic states use it is really rather different. Why is it essential? Well, you know, as with crime, you can do one of two things. You can wait until you're burgled and then investigate it, or you can try and work out beforehand where the threat is coming from. Now, it's exactly the same with uh, terrorism. Uh, And with um, the origins of the Second World War, what do you wait? (laughs) Do you you wait for somebody to declare war? Do you wait for a a terrorist atrocity? Or do you try and work it out beforehand? Well, the difference between that, however, and the way that Ivan the Terrible and Stalin used it is very different. What Ivan the Terrible uh, did was use it to exterminate not merely all his opponents, but everyone he thought might be one of his opponents, most of whom weren't, and that's what Stalin did. And that is why one of the things that Stalin did when he came to power was to ask the greatest filmmaker of the age, Eisenstein, to make a film on uh, Ivan the Terrible and to show that the purges and the killings which Ivan the Terrible had been responsible for were actually essential to the survival of the Russian state, which they weren't. And that's what Stalin said about his own purges, and they weren't necessary then either.
0: This may be a completely impossible question, but can you identify a golden age of spying? So what I mean by that is possibly when spying was most useful or most impactful.
3: Well, now might be one moment. Of course, there are a number of different uh, answers But what I think now is a turning point in the history of terrorism. You know, terrorism is not something which we should be continuously terrified of. But um, one of two things is going to happen. That we will continue to get terrorists who use really rather old-fashioned methods, bombs, even if they themselves are suicide bombers and even mow people down with trucks. The other thing is that they will move to weapons of mass destruction. And uh, that is what uh, the most dangerous terrorist in modern history, Osama bin Laden, wanted to do. I mean, he said a few years before 9-11 that that wasn't his ultimate aim. His ultimate aim was to use weapons of mass destruction. Furthermore, he described it as a religious duty. So... You know, one of the few constants in human history, well, I think there are about two, one is human nature. So, you know, there's still going to be people who are so self-righteous that they believe they have the right to impose their views on everybody else. Secondly, is that all human inventions, without any exception, and without any possible exception, spread around the world. Now, it used to happen really rather slowly. Now it happens really rather quickly. To believe that terrorists are not going to use weapons of mass destruction you would have to believe that for the first time in human history, there was a human invention which did not proliferate. That ain't going to happen.
0: Which really taps into the central message of your book, I think, which is that if we don't look at the intelligence of the past, how can we um, shape the intelligence of the future?
3: Absolutely. And some of the messages are utterly straightforward. But of course, there are a lot of people who just think of long-term past experience as history. You know the kind of thing that we had to take at school and possibly took at university and really don 't want to touch again for the rest of their lives that 's simple nonsense and it 's not difficult to point to really elementary errors so i'll, I'll just i 'll just pick one um, The most important interrogation of the 21st century so far uh, was of Saddam Hussein and Saddam Hussein was finally caught. Uh, in December 2003, after he'd lost the, uh, the war in uh, Iraq. And um, so there he was, waiting to be interrogated. Now, the preparations and the use of intelligence to do so were not in the same class as they'd been at the end of the Second World War. Well, Hitler committed suicide, so he wasn't around, but his number two, Goering, was around. And even nowadays, if one looks at the interrogation, it's very difficult to see how it could have been uh, very much better. Now, when Saddam Hussein was caught, there were no preparations, by which I mean none at all. They didn't even have, for a couple of months, an Arabic speaker to question him. And there were elementary mistakes made at the very beginning. So the lesson we can draw from all this is that intelligence, in more than in any other area of human activity, is not linear. In other words, you can't assume that one generation will have learnt from the previous generation and therefore be a bit better. Now, just one example. A couple of people that everyone who does um, international relations in the 20th century, anyone who does history in the 20th century and others will have come across. The British Prime Minister at the outbreak of World War I, Herbert Asquith. Very well educated, got a good first class honours at Oxford and a prize fellowship, and his American counterpart, President Woodrow Wilson. Probably the best educated president in American history. He was the former president of a major university. Now, these people, as my book shows, and I don't think it's controversial, were not in the same class as their 18th century predecessors. Woodrow Wilson was not remotely as good as George Washington. Uh, Asquith was not remotely as good as um, Pitt the Younger and Pitt the Elder. Now, uh, if people working on intelligence uh, were aware just that how much worse people could be than people who were doing a similar job a hundred years ago, as I've said, They're not aware quite often. It's a bit like um, uh, talking to economists who have never heard of the Industrial Revolution.
0: Um, Something I found really interesting was your suggestion about um, ideology and that when um, we saw the rise of extremist Islamist terrorism, that um, the security services weren't prepared um, to grapple with the ideology and they didn't understand the consequences of that.
3: That's something which at the end of the 20th century we were worse at than we had been during the Cold War and we were worse at than we had been during the Second World War. The reason is utterly straightforward. Uh, You know, people in intelligence services uh, knew about Nazi fascist um, uh, ideology. Uh, People in the Cold War knew about uh, communist ideology in its Stalinist form amongst others. But the problem about Islamist extremism is that this is religious extremism. And what you need to understand that is not political scientists. You need theologians. And it never occurred, as far as I'm aware, to any intelligence service in the late 20th century that they should hire theologians, But but they should have done. So, understanding Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda, and for that matter, Islamic State, without understanding their theology is a bit like attempting to understand Stalin without knowing about communism, and a bit like uh, attempting to understand Hitler without bothering to read Mein Kampf. This episode is brought to you by
1: Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging
0: Already, we've mentioned a lot of famous faces here, but who are some of the slightly more shadowy characters that we may not have heard of that captured your imagination when you were researching the book?
3: Well, one of them, I don't think is a shadowy character, but a good example of uh, somebody whose name is universally known, but virtually never thought of uh, in the context of intelligence, is Mohamed. Uh, no disrespect um, intended at all to Muhammad. But non-Muslims uh, have a very feeble understanding of the Quran and what is in the Quran. So far as Muhammad is concerned, the, uh, those biographies of Muhammad that are most widely read by Muslims in England and elsewhere, I'm thinking of the, the single most popular one, very good one in many ways, uh, describe him as the greatest general in the world. Now, if the account in the Quran is to be believed, which uh, all Muslims believe is to be believed, then that's absolutely right. He won all 27 battles that he fought, and he was engaged in lots of smaller um, conflicts. And um, one of the things that he used, as any good general would have done, was military uh, intelligence. So the idea that there is uh, an intelligence dimension to the life of uh, Muhammad, I think, would surprise most people. All the way through ancient and modern history, if you take into account the intelligence dimension, it doesn't necessarily involve discovering new spies, new codebreakers, but it may well give you an insight you wouldn't get if you weren't interested in intelligence.
0: Of course, intelligence has been used um, for military purposes, as you mentioned. Um, and what I found interesting in your book was the suggestion that those who um, we think of from history as amazing military figures, um, Napoleon and also uh, the, the Roman army, famously both great at warfare, but you suggest that maybe they were actually quite weak at intelligence and let down by that side of things. Yes,
3: yeah, so it's the only area of... Uh... Thought and practice that I can think of in which the Romans were simply not in the same class as Asians, Chinese, and Indians come to mind, but not they're the only ones is intelligence. Because the Romans won essentially because they were the best organized, they had the biggest and best army, and so on. But they won despite their use of intelligence and not because of their use of intelligence. So here was the problem. And it's something that has changed in a way that I think Roman historians have not usually realized by Constantine's conversion to Christianity. What they paid attention to was what the gods told them they should do. How do you know what the gods are telling you? Divination. And different kinds of divination. You know, you study the movement of birds, as if you would discover anything uh, useful that way. But more frequently than not... Uh, by uh, actually uh, sacrificing animals and looking at their liver. And according to um, the shape of the liver, well, you knew various other things. I mean, it was so ridiculous that Russian generals were supposed to take coops of chickens on campaign with them. Um, So before your battle, you were supposed, I'm not making any of this up, you uh, let the chickens out, Um, you give them some corn, if they're not interested, that is really bad news because it shows you haven't any chance of winning. But there are other things they, uh, uh, they can uh, do. What a lot of wasted time. So from the moment that Constantine, the emperor Constantine, becomes Christian, I would like to think that Roman generals um, heave a sigh of relief saying, oh, thank God, we needn't look at the um, uh, the livers of sacrificed animals any longer. We needn't take those wretched chickens on campaign any longer we can use spies instead what well, does happen overnight but that is a real turning point in the history of intelligence
0: what were some of the turning points um in terms of intelligence thought and writing uh you talk about the art of war and i wonder whether you could explain some of the key principles in that and how it was so significant
3: yeah well what um uh Nobody knows how to pronounce his name uh, correctly in their English, and I'm certainly not going to do it. But the individual known in uh, to English speakers as Sun Zhu, who was a Chinese general, a contemporary of Confucius, uh, his is the oldest book on intelligence to survive, and it's still taught, not simply in. Uh, Uh, Asian military colleges, but at West Point and uh, um, Western ones as well. And the key point is essentially that um, intelligence is essential. You know, he he exaggerates. He says, uh, you know, if you understand yourself and you understand the, the enemy... Um, then you can't lose. Well, actually, you can, because even if you know more than the enemy, if they have a bigger army than uh, you, that's going to make um, a a bigger difference. But he's the first person to spell that simple uh, truth out. Nobody in Roman history did it. Nobody in Greek history um, uh, did it. It took us an awful long time to arrive at that conclusion. What one can see in um, 19th, 20th century and matter, other centuries, however, is the best generals in most respects not winning in the end because they ignored uh, intelligence. Now, Napoleon is a good example. There's not much doubt that he was the best general on the battlefield um, at the end of the 18th century in the later revolutionary wars and also in the Napoleonic Wars. But um, he didn't know his limitations. So, you know, went off to um, conquer Russia. And their intelligence was far better than um, uh, than his. They saw him coming, and he was, uh, it was an extraordinary achievement to get out alive. The same happened in the so-called Peninsula War. Uh, the um, uh, Wellingtons and other British generals campaigned uh, against him in, in Portugal uh, and Spain. So we broke Napoleon's codes. He didn't break And furthermore, he had no idea that there was a Napoleonic ultra secret. His best code, and there's a picture of it in the book, was uh, broken uh, by a British codebreaker who became the first British codebreaker to get a knighthood.
0: As you mentioned earlier, a lot of the way that we think about spies is shaped by fiction. And one of those things is technology. So, of course, we think of invisible cars and exploding pens and invisible ink. Um, but in terms of real-life technology, what have been some of the key developments um, that have facilitated um, the improvement in intelligence?
3: Well, I've had to pick out one. It would be what is called imagery intelligence, the ability to see the world from uh, above. You know, arguably... Um, The reason that we're able to have this conversation now is because of the role of imagery intelligence in the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, which I don't think there's any doubt was the most dangerous moment in the history of the world. Soviet Russia and the United States were squaring up to each other after the Russians secretly put uh, nuclear missile bases into Cuba. And uh, if there had been a third world war, it would have been a nuclear third world war and um, a lot of the world would not have survived. So why doesn't it happen? Well, I think the main reason is that the Americans discover in advance what is happening before the missile bases are actually ready. And they do that from spy planes, which can operate at 70,000 feet. Um, which it was only just beginning to be possible to shoot them down at. Later on, of course, uh, it was uh, spy uh, satellites. And the discovery that the bases are being built before they were operational gives time to negotiate a settlement which, put it at its most straightforward, saves the world. So in 1962, October 1962, secret intelligence helped save the world the
0: world in the end of the book you bring things up to uh, up to date up to the 21st century which you could argue we're seeing the world change quicker than it's ever changed before in terms of the technological revolution that's happening at the moment i wondered if you could just speak a bit about um how you think the age of the internet has transformed intelligence and what we might see in the future
3: well i think in many ways um the age of the Internet has made less difference to the way that governments use uh, intelligence because, you know, when when these things began, they were government monopolies, just as nowadays everybody on Google Earth can get a better picture of Cuba than was available to the most advanced intelligence systems in 1962. So the difficulty now is coping with how... People who represent a threat to us, either at the international level or at the terrorist level, are using a new technology. Um, But it does mean that we understand uh, the most dangerous people in the world in a way that we didn't before. Now, I think one striking example is North Korea, which presents the most extraordinary dilemma. Because... What is being done in North Korea at the moment? Uh, The worst gulags since the Nazi death camps of the Second World War. and Yet, at the same time, um, it has or potentially has nuclear weapons. That's a a, a real threat to uh, to deal with. Um, But it does mean that powers cannot nowadays conceal, even from the media, things that they could conceal from the greatest powers uh, in the world earlier in the, in the 20th century. For example, we now know more about the gulag in Kim Jong-un's uh, North Korea than we ever did about Stalin's gulag at the height of the Great Terror in 1936 to, uh, uh, to n- 1938. We are now out of stage when terrorist groups are beginning to get hold of means of destruction and means of communication which a generation ago were a state um, monopoly Um, so you know I stick to one of the points that I've made at the end of, of the book it's not a question of if it's merely a question of when terrorist groups start using weapons of mass destruction.
0: So in conclusion if you wanted readers to take something away from your book what would it be?
3: Um, what I hope they would um, take um, away from the book is that secret intelligence is a necessary part of the history of the world. And there are many good histories of the world, but if they leave out intelligence, they have left out something of real importance. Secondly, that we have um, a false view of what intelligence has achieved in the past for, I think, um, uh, a couple of reasons. One. Um, One is it's been left out of um, many histories. There are not many, for example, that say that it was at least as important under Queen Elizabeth I as it was under Queen Elizabeth uh, uh, II. And the, 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 the second is that because of ignorance of past experience, more I would have said than in any other area of human activity, you do from time to time find people who are not nearly as good at using it as their predecessors over 100 years before.
4: That was Christopher Andrew. The Secret World, A History of Intelligence is out now in the UK, published by Alan Lane. And in the US, it's due to be published by Yale in September. And if you'd like to read more about the history of intelligence, then you might like to check out our special edition entitled The Secret History of Spies. You can order a copy from buysubscriptions.com forward slash spies. And we've now come to the end of today's episode. But please do listen in on Thursday when we're going to be exploring the history of refugees.
0: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at HistoryExtra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.